Bonus Tracks is the official blog of Spotlight On, online at spotlightonpodcast.com slash blog. There you'll find additional artist interviews, music commentary, and more. Have a look. Hello and welcome to Spotlight On, a production of 23 Media Ventures. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today the spotlight shines on guitarist and banjoist Brandon Seabrook, hot off the release of his new album, Brutal Love Champ, on Pyroclastic Records. Brandon is known for pushing his music past the far reaches of the extreme, fusing elements from punk, jazz, pop, and metal. His music has been called abrasive and angular, with an intense focus on virtuosity. But Brutal Love Champ covers new ground. With his octet epic proportions, Brandon explores beauty, personal emotion, and a lyricism not usually associated with his music. In his liner notes for the record, he describes the album as a departure and intimate and vast. Our conversation was vast as well, covering Brandon's early life, his affinity for 80s metal, and his move to more vulnerable, less process-driven music, as well as his reasonings of why for this shift. Brutal Love Champ is out now, wherever you get your music, but you can stay tuned for the end of this episode to hear the track The Perils of Self-Betterment by Brandon Seabrook's Epic Proportions. Brandon, how are you? How you doing? How's my sound? You sound almost as good as you look. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I got my <laughs> mic out. <laughs> no, I should have gotten you a mic stand. I feel bad. You're gonna... No, I like holding it. Okay. <laughs> I do have a stand, but... If the whole music thing doesn't work out, you could host a game show. I would love it. Or stand-up comedy. That's my yeah, dream. There, there you go. There you go. That's actually... Now we're going to go out of order because... Um, okay, yeah, sure. I wanted to ask you later in our discussion, but since you went there, what, if any, role does humor play in your music? Oh, I think it plays a lot. I think a lot of the segues, some of the way that I cram many styles into a section or I what I pull from. I mean, I think it's there's a lot of humor in there. Yeah, I definitely go for that. And I think I don't go for it, but it just comes out because yeah, I like absurdity and I find the humor in so many things. And I mean, music is can be so fun. But what did Frank Zappa ask? Does humor belong in music? Yeah. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, I can't get more specific than that. But of course, I mean, if you hear some of my music, whether it's a display of hilarious technical skill or really layered, there's, I think there's humor, you can find humor in all of it. And uh, you also went the other place I wanted to go, which was Zappa, because uh, oh yeah, it's interesting listening to your music because it's very hard to place right like it's not like you could say oh that was a uh that was a pat metheny lick in that guitar oh playing. well you know, i it's... love pat metheny yeah <laughs> i wish i i wish i could do that but yeah what does he do that you wish you could do no i love his his fluidity his lyricism and the way his just technique but i think he's influenced me a lot i mean he's influenced me the attitude of doing your own thing developing your own sound i love the production of his albums when I record an album, I definitely think about using the studio as an instrument, a tool. And I've always liked that about him, all those records, even if it's just a trio album or a Pat Metheny group. I don't know. He's just one of those artists that I really admire, even though I don't sound anything like him. But that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, of course. Of yeah. course. Anyway, keep going. Keep going. Yeah. Well, what I'd love to do, 
both for the benefit of myself and the listening audience, is I'd love to start a little bit at the beginning. I know you're here to talk about the current project, but I'd love to set the table a little bit. I personally couldn't find out a lot about your prehistory, and I'm wondering, like, where are you from? What, what's your life before Boston? Oh, my God. It's not too exciting, but I'm from Foxborough, Massachusetts, which is oh. a small town right between Providence and Boston. Rough 95, one of those. 495, that junction. Yeah. A lot of traffic, a lot of little towns, football stadium. I was lucky that my town had a pretty incredible music program. So that was somewhere that I could really explore and experiment and learn so much. And so that that was really helpful. Foxborough School's music department was really great. So I learned a lot about music. Uh, Duke Ellington, Vincent Persichetti, Beethoven, mm -hmm. whatever. And a lot of musicians from Boston would come and teach at our school. Matt Wilson. And uh, Alan Dawson, I remember when I was really young, he came for a while and was doing workshops with us. That was great. And that was Stephen C. Massey, was, who's a great band director. He's since retired, but he really had an amazing program there. Learned a lot of repertoire, a lot of like everything from Duke Ellington, Stan Kenton to Bob Mincer. While simultaneously in the suburbs, you could call it boredom or not much to do. But if, when you find your friends who play music, you know, that's all you do. You get, you find the other people who have a drum set or an amp and you just listen to records and play every day because there is really nothing else to do. What was, what were the first records that were yours that you chose as opposed to having imposed on you or just? Yeah, house? sure. Well, that would probably be Motley Crue, Theater of Pain was the first <laughs> record that I bought with my own money. That was exciting. I saw that tour. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. So that yeah. was. And I remember just looking at the record sleeve at home, thinking to myself, wow, this is nuts. I'm never going to be able to do this. Yeah. And then it soon went there. The blues-based hard rock hair metal, which I loved, was really a portal into so many other things. Once you started going back to more classic rock and they stole everything from the blues and then you get into the blues and then from there, jazz. And so that was the starting point it was like the hair metal of the 80s Yeah, for me. It was big. So I bought all those records and I started buying more classic rock, Led Zeppelin, and that led to finding out about Willie Dixon, and that led to Sonny Boy Williamson, and then back around to Frank Zappa, to jazz, to Edgar Varese, to Stockhausen, mm -hmm. through Zappa. And, and We're Only In It For The Money was a big record for me when I heard that in high school. That was crazy. That And then Freak Out with a list of all, he thanked all these musicians on the on the Freak Out cover or in, in inside panel, Gatefold. So I was just looking at all these names, writing them down, trying to find, because in the 80s, you had to go to the record store. They ordered it for you, you know, and then Punk Rock and the SST catalog, and they had a mailing list. So I would just send away for records and it just, yeah, so that was it. I hear a lot in your experience I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but it resonates deeply for me. I, I grew up outside of New Haven, Connecticut. I know Foxborough and Mansfield from going to the venues up there, Great Woods and going to the state. Oh, yeah, yeah, you yeah. You would road trip up there all the time. Those were the only venues. Those were the venues sort of. Those were it. Right? Those were, yeah. That was it then. Back for then. a long time, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We had the New Haven Coliseum and all the all the hair metal bands came through there. Like that's where Molly right, 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 right. Oh, yeah. Everybody right. came Oh, my through. God. The experience that that you mentioned that really resonates for me is this idea of that, like your contemporary music being the springboard backwards, you know, obviously through the rock canon. But I had a very similar experience in how that led me into the jazz world as well, because those artists would not the hair metal guys, but Zappa. For me, a lot of it was the Grateful Dead talking about John Coltrane and 
people who have listened to this podcast have probably heard me say more than once that, you know, I got into Coltrane. It was difficult because one of the guys in the dead mentioned Africa Brass. And, you know, I was like 15 years old and I went and bought it on cassette. And it's like, well, if they say it's good. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's my it's probably one of, if not my favorite pieces of work at this point in my life. But right. at that time, it was like, what the hell? It was like a wall. It was like running into a brick wall. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it also reminds me that it was also these guys, these hair metal guys, some of them were like a portal into film. I remember specifically this interview with Steve Stevens from Billy Idol, who said that he loved film music and that he was really into mm. the Fellini movies, Juliet of the Spirits and Armor Court. I, I know I read this in a guitar world magazine and i was like what is that what is this guy talking about what are these words who's fellini what is this is this a person and i remember reading that and it stuck in my mind and i didn't see any of those films then but i made a note of it and then when i got a little bit older and moved to boston and the video store was a little deeper catalog i would i remember that and i would find it out so it's funny you don't think you know you never know what they're listening to because that's the only thing I was reading. I was reading Guitar World and Guitar Player through the the rock guys, which I still love and still listen to all the time. And going back to it, it's actually fascinating that that sound world is so crazy, especially the drums. You could talk about like electronic music, John Cage, David Tudor. But if you think about the drum production on some of that stuff, it's like the snare drums sound like they're in the Grand Canyon and the bass drums with all these gates. Really a, incredible sound experiments if you ask me that's how i hear it now that this was actually sound that was pretty it's pretty intense maybe some people would think it's horrible and disagree but you know there's an intensity to that sound world that's kind of wild over the top if you just took the hair and the outfits away because <laughs> All right, this is the last hair metal thing but i was recently listening to a uh interview with george lynch and Dawkins and they shared the same manager as Metallica, and he asked those guys once in the A's, like, why don't you just wear, wear your street clothes? You look so much better. <laughs> like, the music is good, but the image, just get rid of this image. So I feel like if we had, could just listen to that music and see those guys just playing, and okay, but I'll stop with that now, because I could talk about hair metal all day. I would, it's not what you were thinking. That's all right. No, about. hey, I brought it up. You, you talked about hair metal without the hair and the costumes. And the first thing I thought of was uh, the Smashing Pumpkins. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Hair metal minus the costumes is the I Smashing mean, Pumpkins. I mean, Pearl Jam, all those bands. I mean, it's basically classic rock without the hairspray. I mean, if you look at those early Pearl Jam videos, they have like a, a crazy drum set, like a total over-the-top kind of prog drum set. Their riffs, it's Hen their Hendrix riffs, they're just, just rock and roll. But, of course, by that point, we needed a new, a refreshing, a little bit. Well, and it never hurts to like cite punk rock to increase your uh, your credibility a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> was your punk rock your punk rock consumption limited to recorded music, or were you going into Providence? Or like I was going to Providence a lot. Yeah, you know, Providence was great because it was it was like a little closer than Boston. And it was a smaller city, and they had the AS220 and Club Babyhead. And I actually started playing a lot of gigs there in high school at the AS220, which was a great space. It's still going. But yeah, I'd go there and play it, go there and see shows, go to record stores in Providence, bought a lot of records there. It was great to be so close to Providence. I also played gigs in Boston and stuff and would go in there, but Providence was closer. And uh, yeah, Providence is a gritty city. It's a while. It's, it hasn't really changed, I don't think. Maybe it has, but 
I've been back. I can't remember how long, but I've definitely been in there, been there within the last call it 10 or 12 years. And what struck me was it was actually beautiful. And I didn't remember it as being beautiful. Well, maybe it's more beautiful now. I don't know. Maybe it definitely did a lot of pretty big makeover to a lot of the neighborhoods. Yeah, I think they did that thing that the small cities do where like they've reclaimed some of the old theaters. They've reclaimed the waterfront and uh, made it more livable because it was the epicenter of the mafia. Providence, the Anju- the Anjulo family was the, was running the show, the East Coast out of Providence, Federal Hill. It's kind of fun. Buddy C. Ancy, all these characters. Yeah. It's interesting also for me to talk to you specifically. As I was preparing for our time together, there was something I, I felt like I either was going to say and tell you or not say and tell you. And I think I'm just going to say and tell you. Oh, which just is, tell me. Yeah. I moved to New York in the mid late 90s. Nice. And I was there until, say, the mid late teens of, you know, last few years. Before that, you know, I was going down, driving down from Connecticut to go to the knitting factory and the kitchen and like goes, you know, so like yeah. well, the, the world of like John Zorn and Bill Laswell, all those guys were like very influential for me. And I always thought I was a musical omnivore. Like I thought I could find good music and I'm not as familiar with your discography as I felt I should be. But rather than frame it as a negative, what it, after sitting with it for a little bit, what I realized was it's just another testament to how much music there is. And when you think (laughs) you have climbed a certain mountain, there's just (laughs) a bigger mountain behind it. It's incredible. Yeah. It really is incredible. But I mean, not my discography, a fact of, yeah. I just just want to clear that up. Never clearing that up. But the, the other thing that stood out for me was, um, Maybe it's in every city or every scene, but the uptown downtown divide, if you will. Mm. And you mentioned Matt Wilson. And I, I talked to him a dozen or so years ago in a, for a different publication. He seems like one of those people that can he can do the respect the bandstand, wear a suit thing, or he could go downtown and chop it up with with everybody that's playing out and making noise. And before that, I hadn't really thought that the worlds overlapped. Part of it, you know, it's just my own ignorance, my own perspective. But no, you, yeah. something digging into your music that was really amazing was I saw a video of you playing with Francesco Mela. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I had only known him from playing with McCoy Tyner. Yeah, it's a new thing for him, I think. That's what he did. Yeah, that's freely improvising. or And that was a band put together by the bassist Henry Frazier. Yeah, he's in this new new world for him doing that. How do you feel about that divide? Do you recognize it? Is it do you aspire to jump any kind of fig- figurative divide like yeah how do you, you think know, about that i play it with a lot of different things i never think of it as a divide i don't know the older i get the more i'm playing i just yeah i don't think of it like that i just uh i pride myself on one of my things that i i think that i can offer is that i can play with anybody so i can kind of fit in anywhere that's something i've take, taken pride in and i play in a lot of different situations but uh there is definitely a divide between like hard bebop and free jazz or experimental, but I don't play into that thing, that divide uptown, downtown. It doesn't make sense to me, even though it is a thing. It's just, I don't pay much attention to it. Do you, do you perceive gatekeepers or are there rooms that you would want to play in that you're locked out of? You know what? Not really. I like the rooms. I think I'm in the right rooms, mostly rooms of my own making at this point. I, I like so much music and I go see a lots of a lot of things that aren't anything like what I do. And I, I, I respect my space. I'm, I think I'm not going to try to get in on something that's too outside of my wheelhouse. But 
Occasionally I do. I mean, I, I play in this large ensemble with Cecile McLaurin Salva, this big band. She has a project, a song cycle called Ogress. It's a multimedia piece and it's like a 13 piece chamber group. And there it's a really cool mixture because there are these incredible jazz players in there. Warren Wolf, Helen Sung, really post-bop, this language, this crazy bebop language. And then there's somebody like me who doesn't have that language at all. But it's sort of a testament to New York and just the way that these artists, just because you're a bebopper or, or play this certain style doesn't mean you can't, that it can't all work. And it's a it's a really beautiful piece and a really beautiful space through all these different artists come together with completely different backgrounds. So that's really fun. I feel like that only happens in New York, but I could be wrong. But anyway, it's arranged by Darcy James, I argue. And he put this band together, this wild band together of people from all these different practices. I mean, mostly under the jazz umbrella. I mean, I guess I consider myself, I can be a jazz musician, but not like these players. I mean, they're burning bebop players and really something else. And uh, I'm not. And there's a couple of situations where I have to play over these changes and these different sorts of things which is challenging and fun but anyway yeah do you modify your your axes at all occasionally i may maybe tune the low e string down but no they're not modified i mean i might use a capo or a alligator clip but no they're not those are all in the realm of orthodoxy <laughs> yeah it's ortho- yeah i mean people ask me sometimes like how do you tune your guitar man and i'm just like just standard tuning i, I can experiment with alternate tunings in the studio or if i write a piece with an alternate tuning which i'm kind of working with now but i can't go out there and play written music or go to a session or somebody's play someone's music with alternate tunings yeah you have to think too hard yeah yeah i can't can't do it because the banjo is tuned in fifths in the mandolin so i've learned that except that different tuning over the years for it took a few years but i have that but with guitar no in banjos in fifths and i don't i don't really mess with it yeah i'm sure that this is not a novel question it's novel if i ask it novel for me what's what's the why behind your affinity for the banjo i picked it up in college i went to new england conservatory and i had a great teacher there named hank Snetsky, and he ran the klezmer eastern european folk music ensemble so i joined that and he said to me he said do you Ever play the tenor banjo? The tenor banjo is a big part of that music. Anyway, to make a long story short, I got one out of the music library and I started playing that music on it. And I just took a few lessons and I just kind of started to bring it around because it's so different from the guitar because there is no sustain on the tenor banjo, very little sustain. So it was completely different than guitar. It was a new challenge, and you have to employ this technique, the tremoloing technique, which is the rapid movement of the plectrum, to create a sustain. I was already kind of doing that on guitar, and I liked that technique, but it really came together when I started to play tenor banjo. And I just love the physicality of it, the tactile sensation of it, which is an, a big part of why I do a lot of the things I do on guitar and banjo. It's, it almost comes from the physical sensation of it. So the trembling is very tactile in the wrist. And I started bringing the banjo to gigs and banging around on it, learning how to read, learning how to play it, learning how to play pieces, read music on it. And then the two were very separate, like guitar and banjo were like the sound worlds were kind of separate. And then they just kind of started to come together and one influenced the other. And 
Yeah, I just, I love it. I mean, I love folk instruments, acoustic instruments. I think it's a great foil for the electric guitar, which can sustain for weeks, days, and years. And it's also a challenge, you know, to try to do something different with the tenor banjo, which is stuck in the early jazz, Irish music kind of thing. Kind of Dixieland. Yeah, the five-string banjo has uh, more practitioners of the experimental, like Eugene Chadbourne plays the five-string. But I love bluegrass and folk music and... Also, playing more instruments is helpful when you're a freelancer. Some people only know me as a banjo banjoist. Some people only know me as a guitarist. Some know me together and also play mandolin. And so it just I just fell in love with it. I fell in love with the physical the challenge of it. Would you ever succumb to a traditional bluegrass project? The tenor banjo is not really set up for it because the bluegrass banjo is a five string banjo and it has the drone string. Gotcha. And it's tuned a little lower and it's tuned as a triad, I think. I did have one for a while. I think my brother has it now, but I don't think so. I don't really have those chop. That that scene is very, talk about uptown, downtown. Those guys just blow, man. Oh my yeah, God. Yeah, those guys are just, that that language, that vocabulary is incredible. And I, I just don't have that set of chops or that would take a long, long time. There was a bluegrass jam here in New York in the West Village. Do you remember that place? It was in the West Village. I can't remember what it was called. There was a bluegrass jam. Wasn't there a Sunday one? I don't remember Maybe. if that was if that was in the village or if I'm confusing it. There, it might have been out at Sunny's in Brooklyn. This one was in the village. I feel like it was Wednesdays, but they had like a front room, a middle room, and a back room. It was just bluegrass. and I remember I brought my tenor banjo there a couple of times and sort of got the stink. <laughs> The stink yeah, this hoodlum? <laughs> yeah, exactly, which I totally respect. So, But I definitely use, from my brief time playing the five-string banjo, I mean, I definitely employ some bluegrass-sounding things, like a faux bluegrass, like try to bring out those the sonorities of the banjo when I can and, and certain sort of fake bluegrass, the sound of that. I can, I can mimic it. I can sort of, a non-banjo player wouldn't really be able to tell. And maybe even a banjo player wouldn't be able to tell of, because I've listened to bluegrass and I love the sound and I want to be able to bring some of that in. You know, it's it's in my music a little bit, you might say. It's like not the vocabulary or the history, but the sound. Something I pull from, but it's not like hardcore bluegrass vocabulary. We'll be back with more Spotlight On right after this break. Bonus Tracks, the official blog of Spotlight On, is currently accepting submissions for reviews and opinion pieces related to the topics we cover in the podcast. We're looking for engaging, insightful, and well-written articles that offer critical analysis and thoughtful commentary on various aspects of music. To learn more, visit SpotlightOnPodcast.com and click on Call for Submissions. Thanks. And now, back to Spotlight On. There's something else that's really fun about encountering your music for the first time, which is the way people talk about it. It's amazing. Like I've read a bunch of press clippings and other interviews, oh, yeah, or just yeah. like introductions to interviews. It's like some of that stuff's like the best advertising. I'm just like, ooh, this sounds yeah. this this <laughs> yeah, this sounds like, barbaric. I like it. Yeah, yeah, that's good. <laughs> well, I'm glad you think it's fun because I, I music is fun, and I try to make it try to make it fun. Yeah, the uh, the the magic clusterfuck of merciless banjo torture was the best one. That's the uh, Christopher Weingarten from the Village Voice. Yeah, I mean, you have to have shirts made with that. <laughs> Man, a clusterfuck of merciless banjo torture. Yeah, I used to use that. Uh, I should bring that back. I'm going to bring that back. Yeah. That's yeah. from like 2000 and 
11 or 12. I, yeah, I got to bring that one back. Hey, man, if it's still true, well, you know. It's still true. Talk to me a little bit about the idea of an octet. Both the idea of what it means for you in terms of a sonic palette, but also the practicalities of um, navigating and captaining a large ensemble. Yeah. Well, I always love the challenge of band leading. I really enjoy band leading and putting together bands and because I come from band, like I, my, my life, like from early on in high school, I was, I was had, I loved bands. I loved pulling off a tight set with a band. You rehearse it a lot. You just have these players together. So I try to, I always tried to keep that going. And this octet used to be a sextet called Ditromal Fatale. So it's some of those same people. And over the years, I added a few other people. So I really wanted to keep it going. Yeah, expanded the palette to another bass player, contrabass clarinet, percussion. Yeah, I mean, I love large groups, you know, Duke Ellington, Zappa, whatever, chamber groups. So I wanted to do that, but challenge myself to embrace more space, more lyricism, longer forms, because a lot of my music before is very manic, you know, manic clusterfuck. Wanted to get it sort of into a slow it down and just sort of a little bit more of a spacious happening, not a clusterfuck. Yeah, so I really pushed myself for this record with the octet to really just slow things down and write for each player and try to really, yeah, embrace lyricism. I really wanted to do that I because a lot of the music I love is very lyrical. And before, I was to always think that I had to be the clusterfuck. I had to grab your attention. I had to be bash you over the head with all these really quick dichotomous things that are just flying all over the place with rapid fire, machine guns, millions of notes, crazy arrangements. You know, with this record, I really wanted to just develop as a composer, just try new techniques and things that I've been thinking about and been listening to. So my band, they're an incredible band. They are like the most punctual, dedicated, passionate, crazy people. And I was so lucky to have them. It's just an amazing thing to keep a band going and then to keep from the sex set to the octet. And then we played a few shows and we put in a record out and I just, it's quite a feat to, to do it. And that was part of the challenge of it. I wanted to see if I could do this, put this crazy thing together. And, you know, as a composer, there's lots of tools in the toolbox you can draw from or a lot of voices you can grab. And there's no prescribed octet necessarily. Right, right. So how do you land on those voices? Is, it, is this just a manifestation of what you're hearing in your head? Or did you assemble them and then write for them? Yeah, well, I'm more process-based and less conceptual. I'm more I'm process-focused and based. I'm not coming up with a concept for the group, but I'm, I'm thinking about certain techniques that I want to really get into. Just basic things like, you know, I really like the polystylistic things of like Alfred Schnitke and throwing everything in, but just simple techniques that I've always enjoyed, canon, 12-tone, things like that. And mm. I, I sit down to write that, and I sit down to write melodies with chord changes. I really, yeah, I just wanted to explore more harmony in this record, because my other my other records before, there's harmony, but it's pretty atonal, and it's not really rooted in too much form. Form is another thing that I wanted to expand upon. Yeah, I just take these ideas, these technical things, and I just start experimenting with them. And then as I get a, a sort of a base gesture or feeling or motive, and then I start to sort of orchestrate it throughout the group. It, may, it might not, I'm not, I'm not sitting down being like cello part, bass part, keyboard part, drum part. But I just come up with the overall feeling, melodic content, motives, rhythm, rhythmic ideas, and then I send it around the group. And it's always a learning process for me. I mean, I'm not really a composer, like big C. I mean, I'm not 
But I learned so much from this record and working with these people that I'm just thinking about the next one, you know, like this one is just like, it's over and I learned so much. And it, it makes me wonder, despite you saying you're not a composer, was there an element of like not being recognized or getting your due as a composer because of the more virtuosic technical nature of what you were doing before it's like like did the because to me as a as an observer i see so much of the commentary focused on those stylistic elements of your playing as opposed to commentary on composition yeah it's because i never really dove into the composition side of it before it was all about the technique and this onslaught of millions of notes so this is my first sort of foray into larger form composition with employing these different techniques. Were you afraid to leave stuff out in the past? Like, why did you, because when I hear you verbalize it, it's a little bit of like a kitchen sink approach. It doesn't come across that way as a listener, quite honestly, right. but I hear you saying it like you had to get all the statements made all at once. Yeah, I just felt like I wasn't confident. You know, I just felt like I had to be shock and awe and mercurial and crazy. And uh, you're like the guar of jazz. Yeah, exactly. I felt like that. I felt like, <laughs> Yeah, I had to do that maybe to cover up some things that I hadn't, you know, didn't have the confidence to to do, you know, but I feel like I really got that out of my system and it was just time to slow things down. And I think I've had, it's had positive results and it, it's exciting. And uh, I'm working on a new solo album right now, actually. The last one I put out was 10 years ago, Silver Vitalizers, and that's an onslaught like a... But this one, of course, I'm just, uh, it's going to be very different. So yeah, I'm just excited about opening up. Maybe it was just a confidence thing or insecurity. You know, I have to be the person that's uh, going wild all the time. But I let that go. I got that out of my system, you know? Yeah. You said that you're not really conceptual. You're more process-driven. And maybe this question's been answered, but I love to talk about this with instrumental musicians and composers, which is, um, is there any element of narrative in your work, in your songs? Oh, in this last record, there's definitely more element narrative element but before i don't know i wasn't thinking about it if the narrative is just screaming and yelling or just a completely jam-packed narrative of you know i love robert altman and i love his films and his narrative is always just so crammed there's so much there's so many dialogues happening if you and if you listen to some of those films with headphones it's crazy the mix and he was the first to use like a 10 channel or 12 channel mixer on on some of his films. Wow, that's interesting. So that was kind of where I was always coming from. I always loved that. And I always thought that why not have just a dense narrative all the time? Why not just have an ons- onslaught narrative kind of thing? But with this record, this, the octet record, you can hear things being passed around. There's more of an arc. There's this form. There's a statement and then a development and then back to the statement and then Although I don't usually like to go back. I guess that's my anti-jazz thing. I don't do like AA. You don't revisit? Sometimes, but I always like that sort of like straight ahead narrative. Like you just keep going. You never come back in a really formal type of way. I like that too. I have to be honest with you. Yeah, I like that. that. I mean, yeah, yeah, but I don't know. The narrative before was always just this kind of like static, dense thing. You could say there's, there's a narrative in there, although I wasn't really thinking about it. Yeah, I guess intention was sort of at the root of my question is, uh, do you sit down and say there's a story I'm telling here with sound or with music or with melodic selection or anything like that? Yeah, no, not in the previous stuff. That was definitely a thought with this new record. How can I 
slow things down. It's not an impenetrable wall of sound. Although I thought I was, I thought this octet record, I was doing it more, which I am, but I still get occasionally like people are like, what is going on here? I'm trying to bring it back even a little bit more, slow it down even more. I didn't slow it down enough. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I can understand what you're saying. And, you know, there's, there's like, there's moments, there's crescendos or there's intense dynamics. But, there's intense, yeah, there's yeah, yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, I, rather than continue to ask you to deconstruct yourself, I de- let me yeah, ask not one more question that. along those lines. Yeah. 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 What, if anything, is the significance of song titles? It's, that's another thing that I love to explore with instrumental musicians, because some people tell me they don't mean anything to me. In fact, I barely even choose them. I just tell somebody name the song. Well, you can tell when that happens. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you, you know, as a listener, happens. I can't always. I can't always. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Um, no, I mean, just when you read the title, you're like, oh, they just thought of this last minute. Like, Yeah, yeah, it's, it's like one click too clever. <laughs> yeah, like, uh, I don't know, like, dust. Come on, you got to do better than that. Unless there's no lyrics, I'm writing down words all the time and phrases and reading stuff and taking stuff out of context. And uh, yeah, I've always been like that. I love words like this would make a great title. On the, the Octet record, some of the title are connected more with the piece, which what I was with the overall feeling I was trying to go for. I love some of the titles. Yeah, I think they go with it. I think some of the, I mean, I want to be chlorophyll. There's just this, like, I want to just break out of my skin. My body, I just want to deconstruct myself. It kind of goes with it. Or compassion montage. The pieces reminds me of, this is a compassionate montage. Oh my God, that's so corny. But, <laughs> you know, they go in there. I think about them. I think about them. I mean, and sometimes it's just funny. It's just words that I love the sound of the way they go together. I have a, I have notebooks and, and notes and of, words and uh tons of words i'm always writing phrases down stealing them i've stole so many phrases i think there's one on there that i uh from lucid to ludicrous it's great i, I stole it mark mark fisher is a, was a great uh writer and theorist and thinker and he wrote a lot about music so i think that was not completely stolen from him but i think he he had another phrase just like that and i just maybe i changed I took it to the word lucid and ludicrous. I, I forget what his was, but uh, yeah. I like the perils of self-betterment. That was the perils of self-betterment. Yeah, that was, uh, that's, that's a tense song. And you're just, I could see that being someone's anxiety about trying to keep up with what they say is the healthiest way to live your life. That's interesting that I really appreciate you sharing that as the creator of it, because the way I heard it or what it touched in me was that the peril of maybe outgrowing oh someone or something you care about because now like it's like that notion of once you know something you can't unlearn it and so you're forced to confront the fact that oh maybe i'm taking a step that people aren't coming with me or thinking you are that's even worse right people get into a spiritual path or they get into a new practice and all of a sudden they have the accoutrement and they start to adopt it but really it's like that's it's not inward yet absolutely that that was in there too that was in my thought for that title for sure for sure I also just stole so many titles from uh, Succession when I would watch, <laughs> when I watch the show. It was just like, there's just too many. And I would write them all down. I have a ton of those. I have a, it's funny. I have a, I have a little note file as well of one-liners or three or four yeah, word yeah, yeah. phrases. Yeah. So as somebody who seems to have a restless or a curious musical spirit, yeah, you know, you've gone now from the sextet record to the octet, you've got a solo record coming. Is there a future for the octet? Is there the idea that you would have a band or now is it like a, tomorrow? Is it a nonette? <laughs> well, no. The, well, we have some gigs next year. You know, it's just, it's a special occasion kind of group. I mean, if we can play three or four times a year, that's great. 
maybe we'll record another record. And I actually was thinking about expanding the band a little bit, maybe, because why not? Yeah, there is a life for the group. We're going to play next year. We have some gigs lined up. And uh, yeah, I'm trying to write new stuff and maybe add some new colors. And it's exciting. I mean, I'm trying to do... I'm not worried about doing too much with the group. I'm trying to do less, but make it better. If we can do a handful of things in a year and make them really, really good and meaningful. That's really satisfying to me and the band, because I don't want to bring the band out for just any old thing. I definitely have their, I'm thinking about them first and foremost in their time. And was this going to be fun for everybody? Is this going to be worth everyone's while? So that drives my decision but they're great. It's hard. Sometimes it's hard to accept. I don't know, like when people are so kind to you and so giving of their time and they're so into it. So anyway, there is a future for that band. And, and you're right. You're, good question. I think it could be a non-net or a 10 tet at some point because, because why not? I don't know. You have such a different orchestration or instrumentation that you're playing with a different palette, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I can, I've only touched the surface of the palette on this record. I mean, I, right when the record was done, I was like, oh, okay. Now I know what I really want to do. So I feel like this record, it's good. It, we got it together and we got we made some nice music. But now I know what we need to do to really take advantage of what the palette could be, you know. There's a really cool video on your YouTube channel of the octet playing. Oh, yeah. Did and, you see it? Yeah, it's super striking the way everybody occupied the space. Like, it, Yeah, I don't not know, much it, space. <laughs> but, it, but it, I mean, to be in the middle of that, that looks exciting. It's exciting. It's so fun. We pulled it off. I Like I said, bands are my, the most, I get jazzed the most about a band. You work on the set, you play this a really tight set, and you just, that energy just can't be replaced yeah. by, I mean, I play a lot of improv sets and concerts that aren't built around a set list, or, but I love my, the most fun I could have is make a set list and you play it every night and you just make an exciting presentation is really important for me. How you present your set, like segues between songs and that's what jazz that's what jazzed me up. I can't even believe I'm saying it. I never say that jazzes me up. But punk rock, when you see a circle jerk set or black flag set or you see a husker do or bad brains, it's just like I mean, I'll never get to that intensity with this band, at least say, but that's the kind of energy that I want to have in my own with my own bands and my sets. That's what drives me. So when we can pull that off, it's the best. I think you need a bad brains cover album. Yeah, maybe, but it's like on banjo, right? That would actually probably <laughs> I'd be doing a lot of podcasts if I made what that. What a band. What a, what a band. band. Could you tell me a little bit about your compositional process? Like, are you sitting down with a piece of paper and writing out parts? And like, what what instrument do you compose within your hands? Are you at a piano? Are you at a guitar? Well, for this octet record, I really needed to get away from the guitar and how I would usually compose with a guitar. So I used a lot of keyboard. And like mm. I said, a lot of the techniques before... That, that process driven, like canon or serialism. Also, just rhythmic compositions would start on paper, or start with a motive on the piano. So I really, and so I think you could tell, I mean, on this octet record, it's the, there's a lot of melodic content that hadn't appeared before or harmonic content. And that came from using the piano and also composing somewhat by chance on paper and trying different things constructing demos and i used a lot of uh you know logic and to also compose some of these pieces and get it together like that so it was away from the guitar which was good which really freed things up and i'm doing that now even for this solo record that i'm writing with guitar i'm, I'm using 
keyboard a lot, piano a lot, which is really helpful, which a lot of composers that I admire and friends have always written off their instrument. I wish that I had better piano chops, but I have, I mean, I'm just clunking out. I have enough that I, that I can just bash it out or just experiment. But that was the process for this. It's pretty simple. I mean, I really try to take one idea and mangle the most I can out of it. I'm an economical <laughs> composer, you know. That's excellent. I like economy and in, in, in my ideas. I tell students that all the time. People come improvise. People come to study with me improvisation. And they play like 7 million ideas in, in a minute. And I always start them like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Just let's play that first thing you played. Or it's the first thing I play on guitar. Or first thing I think about or on keyboard. I'll just start with that and try to. And maybe I'll throw it out. Maybe it sucks. But it's not this like elaborate approach that i have or this crazy like room of paper everywhere or like boards you know note cards and <laughs> i am trying to get better at organizing myself with that and note cards do help and a like a, a poster board does help which i'm trying to especially when you're dealing with a lot of people but i have no reason to believe it's part of your process but i hear similarities between some of your work and the way some of Zorn's game pieces come across. Like there's a there's a spontaneity sure, in, yeah. in your interplay with the musicians that sounds very real time. We actually have sort of a game piece, although I in our live set with the octet, we have some conduction pieces, which we actually didn't get a chance to record because we had so much material. We just we could we can get to it. But that's actually a yeah, it's a part of our live set. And yeah, I love I love doing that. I mean I love improvisation yeah. and chance and do you but, use prompts for yourself? Like, you know, there's the classic Brian Eno card deck and all that no but i've i don't but i think about that I th i'm thinking about using them yeah because the danger of making a solo album is like being too focused on the guitar for me even though i am getting off of it but that's actually a good idea you know i, I do think about using prompts and trying to get into that so i think i might one one last quick question given that at least to my ears it's it is very difficult to tease out who your pantheon is who your who your who your people are would you mind, like, are there a couple of artists, either guitarists or composers that are like, this is my stuff. This, this is what is I love. This is what I love, my kind of music. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's mostly like rock and roll and stuff like that. That's, this is my, it's pretty normal stuff, you know, anywhere from Husker Du, it's like, that's, that's my kind of music to the Minutemen to Schoenberg and Messian. That's like my kind of music or Recently, I've been really getting into the Bob Dylan Rolling Thunder review. Just this is my kind of music. Rock and roll, just dangerous rock and roll is just my kind of music. And I mean, that's it. That, I just try to call that energy. It's more of these things I listen to, Schoenberg or Bob Dylan or whatever. It's just like taking the energy of it and the, the intensity of it and using that as a springboard, you know? Yeah. And also some of the techniques I try to, I, I try to investigate. I'm self-taught in that way. I've taken a few composition lessons, but... I do a lot of score study. I look at a lot of scores and I just steal stuff right out of there because it's never going to come out the same. Goes through the blender. It goes through yeah. the blender. And yeah, so I guess it's just the energy, the danger of rock and roll mixed with the, I don't know if you want to call it sophistication of classical composition, even though I can't call myself a classical composer at all, but that's a, that's a big influence too. Were you a Sonny Chirac guy at all? Yeah, a little bit later on. Not, I, I mean, I love uh, Ask the Ages. That was a big, that was an incredible album, big, big record. And, and, and yeah, that record he did, Guitar, is great. And those early records he made with his wife on there. And I mean, he's on those Herbie Man. I liked it. I liked him. He was, he was, he was influential. Maybe not as much as John McLaughlin or Pete Cozy mm -hmm. or Jim Hall. 
people like that. But I definitely, yes, Nisha Rock was. I mean, pound for pound, you're not going to get better tone than Jim Hall. I mean, that's just, that's insanity. Yeah. I got a uh, transcription in college of one of his comping, not a solo, but how he comped behind Paul Desmond on the song When Joanna Loved Me from one of those quartet records. I got the comping transcription and like, oh, wow, I never thought of that. Let's see what he, like accompaniment. It's so important. I had one teacher in college say, if you want to get gigs, learn how to accompany. Don't learn how to solo. No one cares about that, which is it's a lot of truth to that. Yeah, Jim Hall blew my mind with some of his choices and the way he would deal with chords with just two notes and not full chord voicings and sometimes just a rhythmic attack of his playing. And it, Because a lot of my playing is not necessarily about the notes. It's just about the attack and the rhythm and the timbre. And I feel like Jim Hall is one of those jazz guitarists. It's like, of course, he's a masterful, he's a genius master of the notes. But I feel like a lot of his comping, his playing is is just based on attack and timbre, which I was drawn to. Felt like punk rock to me. It felt, you know, a little bit of a different approach than the normal full chord jazz guitar sort of accompaniment. Yeah. Which he did do too, obviously. But I really appreciate the uh the worlds you straddle and the sounds that you straddle just for me as a listener. You know, it's right up my alley. And, oh, wow. Uh, well, thanks. So I really appreciate that. Well, thanks for having me because I need to get better at this. I mean, talking about my stuff. I remember, I'm, I think it was Anthony Braxton that said, you need to learn how to talk about your music. If there's one thing you do. So, you know. <laughs> thank you so much, Brandon Seabrook. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On, a production of 23 Media Ventures. I'm your host and executive producer, Lawrence Purrier. We're produced and edited by Michael Donaldson, and theme music is by Q-Burn's Abstract Message. For past episodes, web-only exclusives, to make a donation to support our production, and to join our mailing list, visit us online at spotlightonpodcast.com. Thanks for listening, be safe, and stay in touch. Now, The Perils of Self-Betterment by Brandon Seabrook's Epic Proportions.
Thank you.